Oh, okay. All right. Well, I'll, I'll start from here then. I want to talk about how to comfort a friend or a loved one who is dying. There are only two experiences in life that we absolutely have to go through, and that's birth and death. And according to the latest statistics, and this may not surprise most of you, but the human mortality rate is still 100%. Only a foolish person would go all through life completely unprepared for what we all know is inevitable. The people on 9-11 had no intention of dying. They had no idea that morning when they walked into the building and went up the elevator to their office that that was going to be their last moments on earth. For tens of thousands of people in Haiti, they had no idea that Tuesday, 4.53 p.m. was going to be their last moments on earth. So sometimes death comes unexpectedly. Sometimes it's more expected. But either way, it's universal. And so we need to talk about it. In Psalm 89, 48, it says this. I'll read it to you. You probably have it read by now. No one can live forever. All will die. No one can escape the power of the grave. This year, you're going to have some friends who die, possibly some family members. What do you say to someone in their final moments as they are facing the greatest crisis of their life? The truth is, Everybody in this room is terminal. We are all terminal. It's just a matter of time. In one sense, I'm glad because I don't want to live forever on a broken planet that is full of crime and corruption and disease. On the other hand, I am sad because I don't want to leave family and friends and church But in the end, God wants you to be with Him in heaven because in heaven there isn't any sorrow or suffering or sadness or sickness or stress. Death is the last taboo of our society. You can talk about sex no matter how twisted, perverted, or immoral it may be. You can talk about drugs, you can talk about politics, but it's still not polite to talk about death. Have some people over for coffees. Hey, how about we just go around the table? What do you think about death? See if they come back. And so we have come up with all of these euphemisms so we don't have to use the word death. We have more euphemisms for death than for any other word in the English language. Here's some. He's passed on. 
gone to a better world, crossed over, dearly departed, no longer with us, promoted to glory, gone to meet his maker in the arms of Jesus, with the angels, at the pearly gates, laid to rest. Here's some more. He's pushing up daisies, bit the dust, kicked the bucket, cashed in his chips, been tapped out, went belly up, met the grim reaper, gave up the ghost, snuffed out, croaked. Now I did a little bit of research and I came across some that you probably have not heard or are familiar with. And supposedly these have actually been used. Uh, This one, he's riding the pale horse. That's the pale horse of death and Hades in the book of Revelation. Now this evidently was at the funeral of a printer or or somebody who was a publisher. He's permanently out of print. Okay. This evidently was at the funeral of a computer geek. He's been reformatted. Okay. Uh, this was maybe somebody who worked at a grocery store. His expiration date has passed. Okay. This was somebody evidently at, who worked at a nail salon. Uh, he's curled up his toes. Okay. Star Trek fan. Been beamed up by Scotty. Football fan. Now tailgating with Jesus. And, uh, of course, they're an Alabama fan tailgating with the bear. And I guess Auburn fan maybe tailgating with maybe, what, Pat Dye or Tuberville or somebody. So, depending on how you feel about that. Did I just get myself into trouble? Listen, I'm trying to include everybody. I want everyone included. So what do you say to someone who is dying? There are five basic stages that people go through in preparing for death. And these stages were first identified by Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in her 1969 book on death and dying. She had observed mental health institutions and hospitals and she, she saw how people who were at the end of life were often mistreated And so she wrote this book, and it became the focal point of the emerging hospice care movement in the late 1960s. Now, I've taken her points, and I've added Bible verses to them. But Elizabeth Ross made it very clear in her writings that she never intended for these to be five cut-and-dried stages. Don't think of these as, as five you know, packages that are absolute. Think of them as more general categories or or levels of preparation. The value of what she did is when someone is at an end-of-life situation, oftentimes you can identify the stage where they are so you can know how you can respond to them in the most effective way. So stage one is denial. Oftentimes at the end of life, the first stage someone goes through is denial. Their reaction is, hey, I feel fine. Nothing is wrong. This is not happening to me. Now what is denial? It is actually a form of fear. Anytime we fear something, we tend to deny it. And so if we fear dying, then we tend to deny that we're dying. 
If we fear sickness, then we tend to deny that we're sick. If we fear pain, then we tend to deny that we are in pain. In Psalm 55.4, I am frightened inside. The terror of death has attacked me. And so he was afraid of dying. And then from denial, there is a move to the second stage, which is anger. Stage two is anger. And the reaction in the anger stage is, why is this happening to me? When we realize that we are dying and there's really not anything that we can do about it, oftentimes people become mad or angry at the people around them. Their husband, their wife, their children, the doctors, the nurses, they start asking the question, why? I just don't understand why. Why me? In Psalm 39, I was overcome with anxiety. The more I thought, the more troubled I became. I could not keep from asking, Lord, how long will I live? When will I die? Tell me how soon my life will end. Now these are unanswerable questions. How long will I live? When will I die? These are questions that only ultimately the Lord has the answer to them. So stage two is anger. And then the third stage is what is called the bargaining stage. The bargaining stage. And a person's reaction in this stage may be something like, Oh Lord, if you let me live just a little bit longer, I will be a better husband. I will be a better wife. I will be a better Christian. If you let me live a little bit longer, I will stop and fill in the blank with your favorite sin. If you just let me live a little bit longer, I will join the Peace Corps. Just let me see my children grow up. If you just let me see my children graduate from high school or college, if you'll just let me see my grandchildren, I will. you'll see all kinds of improvements in my life. The problem is we can't bargain with God. He's not a, a bargaining kind of God. In Psalm 49, it says this, You can never pay God enough to stay alive forever and safe from death. That's the contemporary English version on Psalm 49, 8 and 9. And then stage four is depression. And the reaction is, well, I know I'm going to die. There's not anything I can do about it, so I don't care. I'm just going to sit over here in my chair in the, in the corner because there isn't anything I can do about it. In Psalm 109.22, I'm at the end of my rope. My life is in ruins. I'm fading away to nothing. Passing away. Hopefully, we make it to stage five which is acceptance. Stage five, acceptance. 
The reaction is, I know ultimately that I'm going to be okay, and so I need to prepare for that time right now. Now, many of you, because you are Christians, are already at stage five. I don't want you to think, oh no, I better get ready for stage one and stage two and stage three. Don't think that you're going to be going through all of these stages. Dr. Ross said, Sometimes you go through all of them. Sometimes uh, they're in a different order. Sometimes it's just one or two. You may already be at the point of acceptance because right now you are ready and prepared to meet your Lord and Savior. Now the value of Dr. Ross's research is this. When you understand these basic stages, these basic categories, then you are not going to pull away from a person who is dying and is in denial or mad and angry or bargaining with God or depressed because you understand these are very normal human stages that they're going through. In Psalm 31, But I am trusting you, O Lord, saying, You are my God. My future is in your hands. We need to learn to accept death and dying because it is in God's hands. Now, there are two basic reasons why we don't like to go to funerals or to the hospital to to visit. Number one is because it reminds us of our own mortality. Particularly if the person at the funeral is in your general age group. Number two, oftentimes we feel like we don't know what to say. We don't know what to say that would be appropriate to the situation. Well, there's seven things that I'd like to share with us that we can do to comfort someone who is dying. When you are standing next to a person, and uh, maybe they're in a hospital bed, or maybe they're at home, you're, you're sitting next to them, you cannot just promise them that they're going to get well. The truth is, we do not know what God's will is for a person in any given situation. So when we say some things we can do to comfort a person, comfort has a lot of different aspects to it. There's physical comfort, emotional comfort, uh, spiritual comfort. There's relational comfort. There's lots of different aspects of comfort, and we want to take all of them into consideration. So we're going to use the word comfort and we'll turn it into an acronym. So C means confront my own fears. C is confront my own fears. Before you can help anybody else, you have to deal with your own fears. Because if you don't, then when someone is dying in the bedroom, you're going to be hiding out in the living room. 
When somebody is in a hospital room, you're going to be hiding out in the waiting room. Why? Because you have not confronted your own fears about death and dying. The reason why we hide is because we are afraid. Now this has been going on ever since Adam in the Garden of Eden, so this is not a new human emotion or reaction. In Genesis 3, But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Whenever you feel like your fears are about to be exposed, you start hiding. So what are the some of the fears that we have concerning death and dying? Number one, I'll say the wrong thing. Don't worry about that. You're not going to say the wrong thing. Don't, don't say something like, you look bad. You know what you know what I'm talking about. And never, ever, under any circumstances, say to a woman, your hair looks messed up. I don't care if she's just been through a hurricane. You know, they don't like their hair messed up, alright? So, just your presence is going to make a big difference. So don't worry about saying the wrong thing. And then sometimes people fear death and dying because they think, some kind of unusual event happens right before they die. Like, maybe angels start singing. Or maybe the person goes into some kind of an uncontrollable spasm and you won't know what to do. The truth is, in most cases, death is very normal. The person simply stops breathing and it's like, they go to sleep. So, you know, last month my my dad died, December tenth, and so I've been you know working working through that. And when I was up there, I asked my mom, and I needed this for closure. I asked my mom, "Tell me exactly how Dad died. I want to know exactly exactly what what happened." He said, "Told me when it was about maybe ten o'clock in the morning, and they have their two chairs in the den with the TV." Some of you have those two chairs in the den with the TV, right? And my dad was in this chair, and uh, he said, I I need to get up. So my mom went over to assist him. And as he was walking by the other chair, he said to mother, "I, I think I need to sit down for a moment and rest. So he he sat down, and then his head kind of went back, and his legs straightened out a little bit, and he's gone. Like he'd gone to sleep. There are very few hallmark moments when it comes to dying. You know what I'm talking about, like the hallmark channel? You know, very, very, very few hallmark moments. You know, the, the person's holding their loved one, and the loved one opens their eyes and says, Is that you? Yes, it's me. I love you. I love you too. I'm going now. Okay, you can go. There's not a whole lot of hallmark moments. There are people who die in a corner of a, of a room in an assisted living care. People who die on a, on a, on a 
a gurney in a, in a sterile hospital setting. People who die at home. In most cases, it's a very normal process. So if we're going to comfort others, we have to face our own fears about death and dying. And then, oh, is offer my physical presence. Offer my physical presence. This is the single greatest gift that you can give someone who is dying. The biggest fear that people have when they are dying is that they're going to die alone. No family, no friends, abandoned. So just being there is what they need. And I discovered something. You don't have to be saying something profound. I used to think when I was with someone, you know, dying, that since I was the minister, everybody was expecting me to make profound statements. I would say something and they'd all go, Whoa! Whoa! That was profound! You feel that way sometimes, Gary? We have to be making constant profound statements. You can just be doing ordinary stuff. You can be, they can be in the chair next to you, both watching TV, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. You alright? I'm alright. You can be on your computer doing your, your work and they're in a chair next to you. You need anything? You can, uh, fine. You can be reading a magazine. It's your presence that makes the difference. This is Psalm 142. I look for someone to come and help me, but no one gives me a passing thought. No one will help me. No one cares a bit what happens to me. That is the statement of thousands of elderly people who are in assisted living and nursing homes. Nobody cares for me. One of the greatest gifts that you can give someone who is dying is the gift of touch. I'm talking about touching them. It is no accident that when a baby cries, what do we do after handing it to its mother? If you're the dad. We hold the baby, right? When the baby cries, hold the baby. Why? Well, there's just something built into the human system that that physical connection calms the baby down. And so, when someone is, is in an end of life situation, you can, you know, you can, you can squeeze their hand. You can uh, pat them on the shoulder. I mean, you can, you can touch them. That says a lot to them. You can say, I am here. I am with you. Remind them that the Lord is with them. This is Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the dark valley of death, will not be afraid for you are close beside me. So offer your physical presence as much as you can. And then M is minister with practical assistance. Minister with practical assistance. Now what does that mean? You can run errands for them. You can help them in practical ways. Usually when somebody is dying, they don't feel very good. They may be in pain and not able to do some things for themselves. In Psalm 38, I am burning with fever and I am near death. I am worn out and utterly crushed. My heart is troubled and I groan with pain. So what do you do when somebody is in that situation? 
you give them practical assistance. Well, what does that mean? Do you want the lights on or off? What channel do you want the TV on? Do you want some ice chips? Don't be afraid to ask them what they need. And since I've been thinking about the Bible from the angle of death and dying, I have a brand new perspective on 1 Thessalonians 5.14. It says, encourage those who are timid. Take tender care of those who are weak. Be patient with everyone. Look at that. Take tender care of those who are weak. Nobody is weaker than when they are dying. And you may remember when you were a, a child or a teenager, your parents, maybe then they were in their 30s or 40s, they were, they were young. They were strong. They did things with you, you know, through the football or, or baseball or played tennis with you. And then you have images of your parent at the, at the end of life having to be assisted in, in, in getting around. They've become weak. Why is it that right after Paul says, take tender care of those who are weak, it says be patient with everyone? Why does it say be patient? Because when you're in pain, you tend to be cranky. It's hard to be spiritual when you have a toothache. It's hard to be positive and upbeat and happy when you have a wrenching pain in your gut. So you have to be patient. Now this is very important. Because when people are dying, they fear they are losing control. And you know what? They are. Slowly the process of losing control sets in. At first they, they can't drive. And then they can't walk on their own. And then they can't get out of bed on their own. Then they can't go to the bathroom on their own. And so you help people by giving them choices. Do you want your slippers on or off? Would you like some ice chips? Now you may be thinking, slippers on or off, ice chips, I mean, that doesn't sound like very much. When you have no power in your life, being able to make simple choices empowers you and gives you comfort. So something as simply as, would you like the window open or closed, may comfort them because they feel like they have some control left. Okay, F is fortify. Fortify them with emotional support. Fortify them with emotional support. Fortify, you can see the word fort, like Fort Morgan, Fort Gaines. Fort, it carries a word to, to be strong or to, to build up. In Galatians 6 2, did y'all get F? Fortify them with emotional support. Galatians 6 2. Carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Here it is. 
love your neighbor as yourself. And you do that by helping them carry their burden. How do you help a person carry their burden? By praying for them aloud? By giving them emotional support? One thing you can do for people, and this is in Dr. Ross's writings, is you can, you can mirror their feelings. That is, you can reflect their feelings back to them. If you are talking with Susie and Susie says she is very frustrated right now, you can, you can lead a prayer and say, Lord, Susie is very frustrated right now and she needs you. She needs your presence in her life. If you are talking with Johnny and Johnny says, oh, I wish I would have done this, that, or the other, you can pray and say, Lord, there are a lot of things that Johnny wishes he could have done. Can you give him strength and, and comfort? Okay. Now what you're doing is you are lifting their burden and interceding for them. God loves people who can't go to the bathroom on their own as much as He does those who can. And it may not be something that when you're healthy, you give a whole lot of thought to, but we ought to be thanking God on our knees every day that we have the health to take care of the basic human functions on our own without assistance. So fortify them with emotional support. And if you really want to encourage them and build them up and just make them so happy, you can send them some of my sermon CDs. You can sign up for them back there. I have good news. Won't cost you a thing except postage if you have to send it out of town. What more could they want at the end of life and one of Bruce's sermons? Lord, take me home. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, I'm looking over here at Gary. Uh, Gary, I'll be up with my mom next uh, next week. Gary's going to be speaking in my absence, so you may want to get a copy of Gary's lesson. Well, listen to it first to see if it's any good. <laughs> then make a decision. All right. <clears throat> and then O is open them up with questions. Open them up with questions. People have lots of guilt, worry, regret, and sorrow. And you can ask open-ended questions that require more than a simple yes or no. You know, you don't have to go over, do you think it's cold out today? Well, no. Yeah. Ask them some open-ended questions, and that demands a response and opens them up. This is Proverbs 20, verse 5 in the Good News Version. A person's thoughts are like water in a deep well, but someone with insight can draw them out. Learn to draw people out like bucket draws water out of a well. That helps them to unload all of the weight that they are carrying. Now understand, don't force somebody to talk. Some people have personalities and, and natures where they are just not very talkative. You'll have to judge the situation on your own. And don't worry about questions that you can't answer. I gave up worrying about those uh, a long time ago. There's three questions that we can't answer. Why me? Why now? Why this? And do you know what the three most common questions people ask are at the end of life? 
Why me? Why now? Why this? And so the three questions that people ask the most just happen to be the three questions that we can't answer. So you can say something like, all of this is going to fit together in eternity. And, and listen to this. Even if you had an explanation, even if you had an answer directly from God, it still is not going to comfort them in their pain at this hour. So the best thing is to allow them to be able to, to talk it out. Now, when you get a question that you, you can't answer, sometimes you can, you can ask it back to them. Like, if a person is in an end-of-life situation, and maybe you're holding their hand, and they're sitting next to you, lying in a bed or something, and and they say, am I going to die? I guess you, well, you, how are you going to answer that? Without just sending shockwaves through them. You could ask this. This is possibility. What does dying mean to you? Now, this is not intended to be some kind of course in logic or philosophy or something. Because sometimes when they ask the question, am I going to die? It is a symptom indicating that they have some deep things inside of them that they need to deal with. It's very possible that they have some uncertainties about what is going to happen to them after they die, and so they need to need to get it out. Dr. Ross, in her in her writings, uh, says that people oftentimes have a fear of what is called unfinished business. I should have been a better husband. I should have been a better wife. I should have been a better Christian. I should have spent more time with the kids. Let them talk it out. Now I'm going to give you a warning. Do not, under any circumstances, unload your personal anger on somebody who is dying. Don't say, I told you 40 years ago, don't start smoking. You're going to die of lung cancer. <laughs> I was right. You were right. 40 years ago, you were absolutely right. They should have never stopped smoking and they are dying of lung cancer. But you're not going to say that to them. You know why? It's not about you. It's about the person in the bed. And so if you have this pent-up anger inside of you, you can get with somebody who is close to you and you can unload on them. You can, you can relate your frustrations to them. I'm just so frustrated. I knew for years and years that they, they should have been doing this or, or whatever it may have been. Okay. So open them up with questions. And then R is remember that the family has needs. R is remember the family has needs. In the city of Joppa, there was a follower named Tabitha. She was always doing good deeds and kind acts. This is where you can really be a friend to other people. 
and Dr. Ross's studies and other studies in this area and just personal experience, it is okay for you as a friend, a close friend, to ask someone who is dying, have you made preparations for your death? What are your preferences? Do you have an updated will or living trust or whatever you're you're doing with your assets? Now, that is not going to offend them. They are not going to be offended by you asking about their will. Do you know why? You're not in it. See, when it's the child asking their parent, Mom, is the will up to date? What's mom thinking? Ah, oh, those are my kids. They're just rolling those numbers around in their head how much they're going to get. But you see, the family is going to be a little uncomfortable with that. But as a friend, you can do it, and then you can relate that to the family because these are very important issues, what you're doing with your, your assets and the preparations that, that you have made. So remember, the family has needs. And T is turn them to Jesus. Turn them to Jesus. We can't heal anybody physically, but Jesus can heal them spiritually and prepare them to meet God. The Bible says that one thing that Jesus came to do was to take away our fear of where we're going after we die. This is Hebrews 2.14. For only as a human being could he die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he deliver those who have lived all of their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. God wants to break that fear in your life so you can focus on the hope of heaven. There's a passage in 2 Corinthians 4. I probably read it 10, 11, 12 times in any given year. It's in a lot of my, my messages. But I have a whole new perspective on it now, looking at it from the angle of death and dying. So we don't look at the troubles we can see right now. The IVs, the medical equipment, the tubes, the hospital room, the test, the doctors, the nurses, the uncertainties. We don't look at the troubles we can see right now. Rather, we look forward to what we have not yet seen, heaven. For the troubles we see will soon be over, but the joys to come will last forever. So when someone is dying, encourage them to do what David did. In Psalm 18, death itself stared me in the face. But in my distress, I cried out to the Lord. Yes, I prayed to my God for help. Have you done that? If you were to die right now, are you relatively certain that you're going to heaven? 
If your answer is no, then it would seem to me that you would want to make it certain. It's all just a matter of time. 95 or 100 years from now, not a single person in this auditorium, except perhaps from some of the smallest ones, will be here. And when you look at all of recorded human history, 10, 11, 12,000 years, and you look at our 80 or 90 years, it's what Gene said in his prayer this morning, it's a slice. You and I, our time on earth is just a thin slice of recorded human history. And to me, it would be absolutely Foolish not to be prepared for what we all know is going to happen. And so I'm here to tell you that you need to make preparations for death. I'm not just talking about a will and your assets and your family and all that. That's really, in eternity, that's beside the point. Have you made preparations? to meet Jesus Christ. One day, He's going to ask you and me, what did you do with the opportunities that I gave you? I gave you the privilege of being able to live in a country where you could go to a, a church building and you could, you could worship. What have you done with that? I didn't allow everyone in the world to have that opportunity. I allowed you to have it. Our you ready to meet God? If you're not, then you need to confess Jesus as Lord of your life. You need to allow me or someone whom you choose to baptize you in water for the forgiveness of your sin. And then you can have the assurance walking out of here that you have done everything that at this point in time, we know the Bible clearly teaches us. Will is going to lead us in an invitation hymn. If you have a particular need, please let us know what it is while we stand and sing.